Now this week, I've been a little under the weather and my head's a little fuzzy and yet I'm excited to get into a new series. I've been wanting to do this since before Christmas. And uh, so we could have we kind of waited another week or so, I said, but, but I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to get in. And that is... Um, A study through the Gospel of John. Now, why the Gospel of John? Well, do you remember when we were talking about the incarnation before Christmas? And one of the points that we made was why Jesus comes in the flesh, why God the Son comes into humanity, why the incarnation, is that it's through the incarnation. It's through God translated into humanity that we can know God. God is beyond us. God is outside of us. God is holy, other, so different that he is not at all what we imagine us to be. That's why I was giving Trey a hard time when Trey said, well, in, in us we know, you know what's the good and right. No, we don't. And our ways are so opposite of God, God's ways. Our, con, our concept, our own imagining of what God must be like is so far beneath what God actually is. We could not know him unless he shows himself to us. And he has shown himself to us most fully in his son. The writer of the book of Hebrews says it this way. God who in, in various times and in various ways in times past spoke unto our fathers, those generations ahead of us, through the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us in his son. We're going to see in the opening verses of John, Those opening verses that the Son of God, Jesus, is called the Word, the Logos, the very expression of God. And so he tells his disciples, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. The disciples had said, you know, we don't know what's coming. We don't understand. Jesus, you're talking about going away, but could you just show us the Father? We don't have to know everything. We don't have to know everything that's going on. If only we could just see the Father and know what God our Father really is like, that would be enough for us. In the midst of whatever comes, that would be enough for us. And you know what? They were right. It would be if only we could know really fully what God is like. And yet Jesus answered them. He said, Have you been with me this long and you don't see it? The one who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. Well, if only we were there then. If only we were in that upper room. If only we were there for those three years. But we've got this. We've got John's record put together over 21 chapters that is for this purpose, that we would know God through his son, Jesus. That's his purpose. And so that's why we're going to jump in, and, and my, my goal is not going to be to work through paragraph by paragraph every verse in this book. John is one of those that is said that a child can wade around in the Gospel of John safely. It's easy to understand. The words are, are very small and simple. In fact, we're going to read fairly simple, straightforward words in the first 18 verses that say some of the most profound things that we cannot fully understand. So it's simple enough that a child can wander around. In fact, when people first learn biblical languages, when people are first learning biblical Greek, they start with John's writings. The epistle, the first letter of John, and the gospel of John. Those are the places they start because he writes very simply and clearly, and yet it's said that it's so deep that the the best of divers cannot plumb its depths. We're not going to be able to exhaust the gospel of John. But along the way, what we want to look for is this. What here 
can I know about God? And how do I step into that knowing him? Because knowing is not merely here. This knowing, is, this knowing of him is lived out in life in relationship with him. So with that as a, as a, uh, a precursor, I want to jump into what's called the prologue of John, probably the most confusing part of the whole book. And I'm not going to explain it this morning, okay? What are we doing here? Well, the Gospel of John is going to explain that prologue. So if as I'm going you say, well, that wasn't really clear. I don't understand that. Well, that's why you're going to need to keep reading. Going to keep some of these essential things that he says about God and knowing him in these first 18 verses, which kind of read somewhat differently. They read much more philosophically than the rest of the gospel. The rest of the gospel is much more in that story narrative that, that you follow along and you just kind of get caught up in. But this first, first 18 verses is very theological, very philosophical, and yet don't get by, and we're not going to try to unpack everything because um, it, both of our heads would explode. And yet at the same time, there are some things that I want us to notice here that he will unpack in the coming chapters, and we want to be watching for them. As, as you go on in, in the coming weeks, I'm going to encourage you, week by week, read the Gospel of John. As you read the Gospel of John, take some notes. It might be on the back of an envelope. It might be, it might be on uh, some, some, some note paper. It might be in a journal. However you do that, take some notes along the way. Look for particular. What do I see about God here? What does this tell me about what God is like? And we'll start from there. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, the fourth gospel in the New Testament. And if you're using the church Bible, you'll find us on page 986. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, and verse 1. I'm going to read the first 18 verses. Like I said, you'll catch that. This is not so much the story that the rest of the Gospel of John is. It's a little different. <clears throat> and we're going to notice seven things in particular. This is what God is like. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a, now this is not John the writer, this is John the Baptist, just to give you a, a heads up, we'll see that next week. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. <clears throat> and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. 
And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only Son, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The Word, the Son, has made God known to us. First of all, the eternal God, the eternal God who is above and before all things, the eternal God is knowable. He can be known to us. In fact, this, this word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word is the expression of God. In, the, in Greek philosophy of the day, they used that term logos, and what they meant by it, what they meant by the logos or the word was the nature of of God, the, the soul of the universe, the expression of God. Philo talked about uh, the word or the logos being an intermediary between, an inter- intermediator between God and his creation, being both the agent of creation and the one through whom or the agent through whom human mind can apprehend, comprehend, understand God. Say, well, I don't know that I comprehend what you just said. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I do either. Head cold. But what I, what I did get out of all that is John is starting with terminology and concept that his non-Jewish audience is going to understand. The people of the day, he's not using heavily biblical terms even though he's pulling out of biblical truth, such as in the beginning. I read in the beginning, and what did you think of? Genesis. Yeah. And, we're, and, and it gets into creation. All things were made by him. He gets into creation really quickly there. So he's, he's using biblical truth, but he's conveying it in a way that a non-Jewish, and we'll see hints along the way in the Gospel of John, that he explains things that were particularly Jewish. He explains them so that his audience, which is not Jewish and not particularly strong in the Old Testament, he explains them in ways they're going to understand. So then God is knowable, and he starts in terms of being knowable in terms Not unlike Paul does in Acts 17, as we talked about last week. He uses terms that people around him are going to understand, and yet he surprises them in it. He surprises them in the way that that, um, what he says about the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. They're expecting this expression of God comes out from God, is, is other than God, yes, but less than God. He says the Word was with God and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. You'd have thought he would start with in the beginning God. And then God spoke the Word and the Word came after God and from God. That's not what John does here. He's using their terms but in a surprising way. God is knowable but God is knowable in other than what we would expect God to be. So one of the things you want to look for in the Gospel of John as we go, be willing to be surprised about what God is like. Be ready. Be looking for as you read. Don't just read through in ways of I know what's here. I've seen it before. This is a familiar story to many of us. And yet be willing to be surprised about something that is true about God as we're going to see it here. 
Because Jesus as the word, Jesus as the expression of God is going to disrupt the wisdom of the age, the common assumptions about what God must be like. For instance, the word is going to become flesh and and dwell among us. That's different. That's big. That's unusual. They weren't expecting that. The flesh was low. The flesh was undesirable. That God is, is much purer and separate from flesh, and yet God comes into this humanity. God takes upon himself flesh. God is far more than we realize him to be. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. All things were made by the Word. The Word is the creator. Now, this is an important point. There are folks around us who would call, say that, no, no, we are Christians. They will come and knock on your door, and they will, they will want to debate or show you something new from the Bible that is different about Jesus than you realize, and in so doing, they're going to want to make Jesus less than he actually is. Well, Jesus is not God, they will say. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus didn't create everything because Jesus himself was the first one created by God. And then, after God created Jesus, then Jesus created everything else. That's what they're going to tell you. And you could argue around John 1.1. It's in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and then the Word was God. And Jesus is the Word from verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the Word, and the Word was God. It says so right there. And yet around and around we'll go debating Greek grammar that we don't fully understand because somebody else told you so. But I want to give you theology on an envelope. I want to give you a, a different verse. Verse 3 that shows you something about God that's actually easier to see it once you see it. And makes the point really indisputable about what John is saying also in verse 1. This is important because God is the creator. I'll talk about that in a minute, why that creation point is important. And that Jesus, as God, is creator. So, get an envelope. We've got an envelope. Now, on your envelope... I want you to draw, well, if you don't have an envelope, you can be, there's envelopes in the pews in front of you. You can then use that for the offering later. But maybe you're going to use the, the notes on the back of your bulletin. Uh, on your envelope, draw a rectangle. And that rectangle, take you back to geometry and the theory of sets, right? Set theory, that, that, that outer boundary, that includes everything that is. Everything that is fits in that box, that Bench fits in that box. Tom Allen, behind that bench. Tom fits in that box. Okay? Everything fits in that box. Everything that is. Okay, now we're going to divide the box into two. We're going to divide the box into things that are made and things not made. Things made and things not made, okay? Everything that is falls into one of two categories. Either it was something that was made or it was, is not something that was made. You follow me? What is one thing that you could put in the things not made box? You could put God in that box. I know you're not supposed to put God in a box, right? But just, just think in categories here. Categorically, God is not made. God was not made by anything or anyone else, okay? God has to go in the things not made box. Now, you could come up with lots of other things you would put in the things made box. Now, here's your question. What box, you ask these two nice gentlemen with ties and everything that came knocking on your door, you ask them, which box do you put Jesus in? Oh, they don't want to put Jesus in a box. 
The problem is this. If they put Jesus in the things not made box, they have made Jesus equal with God. They've, they have, he is not even made by God. He's not made. They don't want to do that. But if they put him in the other box, they've got a problem with John chapter 1 and verse 3. Because verse 3 says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So I can't put Jesus in the things made box, because without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. You see the problem? It boils down into nonsense if you put Jesus into the things made box when nothing was made apart from him. You say, well, maybe it means that except for Jesus, nothing was made that was made. Well, think about that for a minute. What does that mean? Except for Jesus, nothing was made. So we're really not here. Because except for Jesus, nothing was made that was made. You say, oh, Bob, you said you weren't going to get too much into philosophy. Okay, Let, let's back out of that just for a minute. But God is in the one box. Things not made, and Jesus is in that box because everything in the other box was made by him. God is our creator. The word is the creator. That's what the first three verses of John are expressing to us. And, and th that's, that's, that's important when you get over to verse 14. Because the one who made everything is the one who stepped into this mess for us. God is knowable. God can be known. God is the creator. And this notion of creator is terribly important today. It's interesting to me that, that Paul starts with that. In Acts chapter 17. That, that John starts with that in John chapter 1. And in our society today, we used to understand. There, there, there has been a heritage in the West from the Reformation. And even before that, there has been a heritage through the West from the time of Constantine. Const, Constantine. Constantine, the emperor. When, when he makes, when he makes um, Christianity the, 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 the religion of the Roman Empire, and understanding within Christianity, the understanding that we are created, that God is our creator, we've, we've accepted that. That's been default knowledge in our culture up until fairly recently. And all of a sudden, evolution has, has, has moved in, increasing beyond just a, a scientific theory to, to an assumption of origins. That people are losing sight of being created, first of all. And thus being in some way accountable or answerable to the one who created them. That we are created and, and, and then add to that that we are created in the image of God and the likeness of God. There's something unique and special about us in our creation. It's important today and it cannot be assumed any longer. So, so those of you that are raising children, raising children, you're raising grandchildren, we have our work cut out for us in this generation that we cannot lose sight that of the fact that we are created in the image of God, that is terribly important for our own identity, terribly important for the identity of our 
children, our grandchildren as we raise them up, that God has made us, that he is our creation. In fact, even in, in people will argue, people will argue today about the, the, the notion of gender confusion, identity confusion, and, and uh, same-sex attraction, all of that goes back to creation. And one of the arguments is given is, my creator made me like this, so your argument, if you don't like the way that I am and who I'm attracted to, your argument is with my creator, not with me. Let's go there. Let's assume that reality that we are created, that there is a creator, because that is disappearing. And if we are created and there is a creator, then that opens up the whole realm. Well, what then happened? And there's obvious brokenness. And there's obvious problems all around us. And that brokenness leads into a conversation about what went wrong. There was a fall. There was a rebellion. There was a departure of humanity from the created purpose. And on we go from there. We'll unpack this more as we go. But my point here is the eternal God is knowable. And he is knowable, first of all, primarily, especially as creator. Not only is God creator, God is relational. This also, just in the first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. They were in relationship together. God, at the core essence of his being, is oneness in plurality. Let us make humanity in our image. God is relational. He doesn't need us to be in relationship. We think God is relational, so he needs us so that we'll be in relationship with him so God in relation can meet his needs. No, God was in perfect relationship from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit before anything else was. And yet, because God is relational, he made us in his image that we, among all creation, we, humanity, can be in relationship with him. And to draw us into relationship with him, what does he do? He steps into humanity to forge relationship with us. God is relational and desires that we would know him. I see that relationship also in verse 4. In him, in the word... In him was life, and that life was the light of men, that we talked to the children earlier about light. What does that mean, that in him was life? What is life? Now we're going to get philosophical again. What is life? You know if something is living or not, right? The same thing can be living and then it's not living, right? I trimmed uh, our our plum tree yesterday, and... um, I actually came into the house before I even started trimming. I was working with one of those little extension pole chainsaw thingies, and, and I cut myself right off the bat and had to come, in, come inside and, and uh, staunch the bleeding and, and get, get put back together. It only took a Band-Aid. Any story that, is, that begins with a chainsaw and ends with just a Band-Aid is a good story, right? <laughs> but my, the, the parts that I cut off the tree, some of them were already dead, and they were obviously just break right off. Some of them were living, and yet now they're not. The same thing, the same elements, the same piece of the tree that was living and now is not. What's the difference between life and the absence of life? I thought, well, that's an interesting question. It surfaced in our men's study on, on, on Monday morning. And so I went digging to that and I found out that nobody knows. Nobody knows. Biologists cannot answer what is alive versus not alive with any clear and specific definition. In fact, one had suggested that if you wanted to answer that, what, that question about what is life, you cannot ask a biologist, you better ask a theologian. That's where 
the meaning of life comes from. For instance, biologists would, would describe one of the essentials of life as reproduction. But that definition isn't going to work for a mule, whom you would argue is certainly alive but cannot reproduce. In fact, that definition or that aspect of the definition wouldn't even work for one solitary rabbit. And yet you know that rabbit is alive as it hops across your lawn, right? What is life? Well, I want to turn that whole conversation away from biology into relationship. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And in that withness with God is His life. Life is expressed in relationship. Now, you can take that into biology, you can take that into astrophysics and so on, but I'm not going to do that, and you're welcome. But life is relationship. Think of it this way. Genesis chapter 3. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Did they? Not physically in the way that we think of physically death. Now the body's dead. There it is. It was alive and dead. Clear? No, they didn't. They lived on and on and on for, 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 for years. In fact, centuries. And yet, that day, what happened? That very day, out of the garden, separated from God, a break of humanity from their relationship with God. Death, from the very beginning, was a break in relationship. And yet the Word, the Son, is with God in relationship. And His relationship with God, His life, is the light of men. Oh boy, well, what does this mean for you and me? What it means is if you want to, like the kids... If you want to be lights in the midst of darkness, as we are called to be, what does that mean for us? How is that lived out? How is that stepped into? My lightness is going to emerge out of, it's going to shine from that relationship that I have with God. You want to, you want to share Jesus with other people? Then you need to spend time with him yourself. And out of that relationship, you'll find life and light overflowing to the people around you. Even if you don't say it, they'll see something in you. It'll leak out of you. You can't hide it. Even when you put a bushel over it, you can't hide the light. It seeps through the cracks. And there it is. But it comes not merely out of the things that we know, but out of our relationship, our walking with him. God intends us to participate in his life. He sends his life into the world, his light into the world, so that we will participate with him. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or comprehended it. The darkness can't get his arms around it and control it, define it, or limit it. Darkness is the absence. Light even we know this in physics, light is wavelengths that, that shine in and disperse darkness. Darkness is simply the absence of the light. But the point is that God sent his light and God sent John. God sent John to, to warm the audience up. John was like the opening act before Jesus steps onto the stage. God sent John ahead, even though they didn't really care for John either. They didn't listen to him, and they didn't listen to Jesus after him. But he sent John, and he sent his son because he wants humanity to know him. He chases us. 
He wants us to be in relationship with him. God intends for us to participate in his life. And so we then, in his life, shine in the midst of the darkness. That God is willing to endure rejection in order that he might draw us to himself. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as who did receive, he came knowing he'd be rejected by many and yet believed on by some. And yet, it's not, actually, we're surprised that he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. They should have received him. We're surprised that they didn't receive him. They didn't believe him. They should have recognized him. They should have known him. They should have embraced him. Our Messiah is here. We're surprised that they did not. We should be surprised that anybody does. Because he came into his own, but his own shared the same fallenness, the same sinful brokenness, the same character of darkness that runs from the light, his own nation of Israel shared that with all of humanity. The amazing thing is that anybody believes. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you believed in Jesus as the Son of God, that you are saved by him, faith in him and his death for you, his resurrection, his life by the Spirit of God in you? Are you saved and brought into relationship with God through Jesus That is far more amazing than we realize. From our side, it could not have happened. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 is going to discourage you. It should encourage you. But at first blush, it could discourage you. Verse 13, 13, those who became children of God, who believed on his name, they were born, they were born again, not of blood, Not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but from God. What does that mean? They were born not from blood or bloods. They were not born out of physical human descendancy. Your children are not Christians because they they were born to Christian parents. Okay? Even as true Israelites, believers in God following the faith of Abraham, are not true Israelites simply because they're descended from Abraham. It's going to come out in the book. It's not by blood descendancy. Okay? Neither are they born by the will of the flesh. I was not born again because me, in my human flesh, in my human fallenness, wanted to be rescued. I wasn't saved on that basis. It would not have happened. Yes, I, have a, I had a, a free will, but a free will that was free in its rebellion and fallenness. Nor are they born again by the will of humans. This is a tough part for us. I know in this group, and any group of people this size, there are those um, who have adult children. And some of your adult children are not walking in faith. They are not giving any evidence, any indication to you today that they do believe in Jesus as their Savior, and it aches your heart. And you would do anything. You would give your own life if you could change that. And yet we can't change that. But God changes that. They were not born out of physical descendancy. They were not born again of God merely because they wanted to. They were not born of God because somebody else wanted them to be saved. But they were born of God by him. 
there is the hope and the confidence that I could believe that you could come to faith because God has intervened and stepped into human history and from there God has intervened in human hearts and he is drawing people to himself. And we're going to see that wondrously, miraculously all through the book. God grabbing one after another and bringing them to himself. God intends for us to participate with him in his life. God intends to endure rejection in order to bring us into relationship with him so that people will know the Son, and people will know God through the Son. And knowing God through the Son is to know him on the basis of two things, both truth and grace. You see, the law comes by Moses. It says in verse 17, But that likeness that we have seen of God, that we know God through the Son, and we know a God who is full of grace and truth. In fact, verse 16, I think it is, says that it piles on grace upon grace we see in his life. And when you go go with him and meet the woman at the well, you see the graciousness of God in Christ. When When you stand with him there as the crowd gathers around that woman caught in sin, and Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. He responds to her, not in the conviction and condemnation of the law, but he responds to her in grace. You see, the law came by Moses, and Moses is true. Moses is right. There is nothing unjust. There is nothing harsh about the law. The law is true and right and just, but none of us will measure up to it. And grace and truth comes by Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Think about it. Our poor version of grace is this. We understand God's grace as pretending that I'm really not so bad after all. We think of God's gracious reception of me as a grandfather receives his grandchildren as if nothing's really wrong with them after all because they're his. But truth recognizes everything that is wrong in me. People come to God either not even understanding that there is much wrong with them or they come to God understanding there's much wrong with them and they're going to tuck that way down deep within because if God ever found out, it'd be over. How do they know that? Well, they get that from God's people because they keep it tucked down deep in among ourselves. Why? Because if... God's people ever found out, (laughs) it'd be over. And yet, Jesus comes, and he wraps his arms around us, knowing us fully, knowing our need, knowing everything we would want to keep hidden. He knows that in truth, and yet is able to wrap his arms around us in grace, because he took that for us. The law comes by Moses. And I can't measure it. I can't measure up. Neither can we. Neither can we measure each other in relationship together. We'll never make it that way. But grace and truth comes by Jesus Christ. In fact, the reality of the fullness of his grace allows us to be true, even in our confession. And that's what this gospel is going to call us to. It's really good news because God burst onto the scene 
became flesh and dwelt among us. So even though we were hiding, we don't have to hide anymore from him or from one another if we understand grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, that's what we want. That's what we hunger for. Lord, we want more of your grace and truth. Father, if we rest fully in your grace, we don't even need to be afraid of what your truth will reveal. So, Lord, as we open up this book, as we read through it, as we see something of ourselves in it, even as we see much of you, Lord, show us your truth. Show us truly our need, Father, that we might run to your grace. Lord, we want to we live in your life in relationship with you. We want to give out of your life in us, even what we give now in this offering, even if it includes that, that card written, Helping Prairie High School, that we want to give ourselves to others because somehow we want to show your light as you've given it to us. Lord, we do that not in ourselves, not in our means. We do that by your grace, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.